You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 today, Luke chapter 2, verse 39. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. I want to ask you a question as you're doing that. What is the, the most or one of the most difficult things that you have ever had to do? Think about that. Think for just a second. What is the most or one of the most difficult things that you have ever had to do? There's some of you in the room who are kind of like Napoleon Dynamite and Uncle Rico who are going, well, you know, it was the football camp of 1985. That's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. And, you know, hopefully that's not the truth for you. But uh, if it is, hey, well, you know, more more power to you. Some of you are going, you know, graduating high school, graduating college, graduating with my master's degree or my PhD, whatever it was, that was the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. Others are going parenting, most difficult thing, marriage, most difficult thing, whatever it is, working my current job, maybe, maybe it's giving the news to someone who's lost a loved one, whatever it is, we all have that moment where we can look back and go, this is probably the most difficult thing that I have ever had to do. But the question that I have with regards to difficulty and and pain in our life is what is the purpose of these difficulties? What what, what is the purpose of your pain? What's the purpose of my pain? Why would it, you know, you probably hear people say this, why would a good God allow us to go through such pain and difficulties? C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What's the purpose of your pain? Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, talking about how pain keeps him from sinning, says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in, in the flesh. Uh, notice what he says. He says, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me, from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that it should leave me, but God says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I am content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This morning, we're going to lean into the the second chapter of Luke. And I, I think through this text that God is going to reveal to us the purpose of our pain. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of my sermon is Pouring In to Be Poured Out. Pouring In to Be Poured Out. I saw this illustration years ago. Uh, I was at a youth summit down in Florida, and the speaker said it like this. So all of our lives are built for one thing. Every single one of us in the room, all of our lives are are built for one thing. And and the reality is our, our lives are similar to this cup. Scripture says that we are empty vessels, and what our lives are meant to do is our our lives are meant to be poured into 
by God and then poured out to the world, poured out to others. But what we have a tendency to do, what we often find ourselves in this place is instead of being poured into by God and putting the cup towards him and saying, God, fill me up so that I can then pour myself and ultimately pour you out to the world is what we, we take this cup and we point it at ourselves. Or we take this cup and we point it at our spouse. We take this cup and we point it at our, our job, our position, our title, our finances, and we look all around the world to find meaning, to find purpose. And we go, hey, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. And then what happens when life gets difficult? What, what happens when we begin to try to pour out ourselves in the world, our kids, our family, our friends, whatever it is, because we've been trying to be poured into by these things that will never fill our cup, our cup is empty. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is how we can go through pain, how we can find purpose in pain, but how, most importantly, we can function in the way that God has designed us to as an empty vessel to be poured in by him and then to be poured out into this world. Where is your cup this morning? Is your cup pointing towards the heavens and saying, God, fill me up so that I can be poured out for your purposes and your plan? Or are you pointing your cup to yourself, your self-worth, your identity, your, your job, your, your, your spouse, your finances, whatever it is, where are you looking to find wholeness and completion? So like I said, we're going to be Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 39, if you'll stand in honor of reading God's word with me. It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You may be seated. So what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to walk through this text. I wanted to read the whole thing in its completion and then go through the process of, of dissecting this text so that we can kind of understand the context of what, what is going on in this story. So the first two verses, verse 39 and verse 40, kind of lead us to this place 
where Luke is ending this previous moment of the, the ritual cleansing, and he's moving time forward. So the author Luke is, is writing this story, and he's trying to keep it the best account that he can, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what he does is he gives us a couple of verses to just kind of fast forward Jesus' life. And that's what you see in those first two verses. He even says, and the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. Now, this isn't something necessarily for us to just kind of skip over because it's giving us context for what's happening next. He's saying, essentially, hey, Jesus is no longer a baby or really even a toddler. Jesus, the Messiah, is now a full child. And that is where we pick up in verse 41. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, I don't want us to miss what God is saying here through Luke because I think this is a key portion of this text. The first two chapters of Luke have kind of been devoted in so many ways to keying in the reader to the devout nature of the parents of Jesus. I mean, if you, if you think back to the last several weeks, and we've been walking through this book now for about seven weeks and if you go through these texts and you look back at the, the verses, so often you see Luke kind of highlighting the importance of Joseph and Mary. Why is this an important thing? Why, why would Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, encourage us to look at this couple? Isn't this book all about Jesus? Well, ultimately, yes. But I think we need to ask the question is, what is God trying to teach us? And I think if you go back to my illustration, what God is trying to teach us, first and foremost, is what is pouring into you is what will then be poured out of you. And we're going to see this in Joseph and Mary. The first thing that we're going to see is that devotion is preparation for pain. Devotion is preparation for pain. If your cup's not being poured into by the Lord, when the moments of pain and the moments of struggle and the moments of strife come and you go to pour out yourself in them to make sure that you're stable and make sure everything's going well, your cup will be empty. However, the scripture says that when your cup is overflowing, overfloweth, KJV, right? When you are filled with God and you go to pour it out in those moments and you try to weather the storm, your cup will continue to be stable, because he has poured into you. And this is the picture that we're going to get from Mary and Joseph. That they are devoted followers of the Lord. How do you see that, Chris? Well, great question. Thank you for asking. Let me show you this map really quickly. So, excuse all of the pixelation. But if you remember the trip. Now, this, this map specifically is the trip of Joseph and Mary making the trip to Bethlehem. But if you'll notice how close Bethlehem is to Jerusalem, you're talking maybe a couple of hours, at most a half a day, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So the specific moment that we're talking about today is when Joseph and Mary are making their way to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. So they would have started in Nazareth, all the way north up there, and they would have made their way all the way down to Jerusalem. One, one, one author says it like this. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem probably took about a week. Now, again, we're going to Jerusalem, but you can see how close it is. So if the current hypothesis among big biblical scholars stands, that is at least a four-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph would have traveled about 90 miles in four days, averaging about two and a half miles per hour pace 
for roughly eight hours a day. So why is Luke highlighting their journey? And not only is he highlighting the journey once, but he says they did this every year. Luke is trying to get us to see that this trip would have revealed the devout nature and the pious nature of Joseph and Mary. Because this trip alone would not have happened if they were not doing the regular day-in, day-out things of following God. Like, this isn't just a Christmas and Easter Christian moment, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, those Christmas and Easter Christians? It's those people who profess faith in Christ, and I'm not bashing, I'm just saying it is what it is. Like, this is, they exist, right? I profess faith in Jesus, I love them, I go to church on Christmas, and I go to church on Easter. That person likely isn't going to make that type of trip, right? We make Christmas and Easter pretty easy at churches today. I don't know if you know that or not. We spend a lot of money making it really easy. Like, we've got better donuts that day. We've got a better sermon, right? We put our best foot forward on Christmas and Easter so that those people can come to faith in Christ, that visit us, that maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe somebody who's kind of been wayward and hasn't been to church comes to church, hey, maybe this is a great place. Joseph and Mary didn't have that type of service. They had a long trip to get to this place in Jerusalem. Only a devoted follower would have done this. And one of the points that we need to know as we read this text, and parents, this is specifically for you. What you make important is what your kids will make important. Think about that. What, what you make important is what your kids will make important. And if you're going there, I don't have kids. Let me tell you this. People with friends in the room. Maybe you're going, I don't have any friends. Hopefully you have one. You got a friend in Jesus. How about that? Everybody hopefully has a friend in this room. So if you, if you don't have a kid, let me tell you this. What you make important, either your friends will make important or you'll find new friends. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. But for every single one of us in this room, what we make important, the people around us will see and they'll begin to value those things as well. Parents, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old and when he was old, he will not depart from it. Parents, most of us in this room desire for our children to have a relationship with Jesus. We desire for our children to grow up healthy. We want them to, to go to school and to get good paying jobs. And we want them to get married and live a happy life. And we do a lot of things to help them on that path. I mean, think about all the sacrifices and all the work that you do on a daily basis so that your child is healthy. So that your child grows in stature the way they're supposed to. And that they have a great future ahead of them. Right? If you think about health, you try to put good food on the table. You take them to the doctor and the dentist and whatever else in their life. You, you try to teach them what, what good nutrition is. For school, you, you help them with their homework. Some of, some of you send your kids to college and further, and you help them learn. You help them grow. For, for marriage and future relationships, you, you try to teach them what it looks like to have a, a happy and a healthy relationship. You teach them safe boundaries, and you say, hey, here's, here's what it looks like when somebody actually loves you and cares for you. And in all of these, we tend to model kind of those things in our own life, right? We, we, we go on diets, and we try to read, and we try to work hard, and we try to model for them what it looks like to be healthy, to, to be learned, to have good relationships. But if we're not careful, the one thing on the list that we tend to drop, the one thing that we don't 
explicitly model is following Jesus. Now, I don't know why we do it. There's, there's probably a whole list of reasons, and, and, and you probably have a unique one, but I think if we're not careful as parents, we can leave out the explicit nature of following after job, of following after Jesus. We get so focused on the things that I think we, quote-unquote, have to do, that we forget all about the one thing that we've been called to do. What you make important is what your kids make important. What you make important is what your friends will make important. Look, if you make reading your Bible a priority, a priority that your kids see, I believe that eventually they'll make it a priority. Let me, let me talk to you about reading this Bible. One of the things I've noticed as a pastor is when you, when you show up, uh, somebody's passed away and you've been asked to do a funeral, and you sit down with the family and you start talking about the deceased and you start having conversations about their stories and their life. And you know, one of the most uh, important and one of the quickest things that comes out is quickly if, if they're a believer or not. And if they are a believer, one of the first things that is revealed is that person's Bible. And I think it's such a unique insight into that person's heart, right? You can open up a Bible, and it can be pristine, and it can be crystal clear, and you might even hear, right? And you're going, that specific Bible wasn't cracked open very much. Then you can open others' Bibles, and the pages are falling apart, and there's highlighters, and there's all sorts of things. And I think about that as a parent, because I go, you know, one of these days I'm going to die. And my son and my daughter are going to be in that room with a pastor. And they're going to be talking about, you know, what, what did dad want for his funeral? And you know one of the things that they're probably not going to do is they're probably not going to reach out my phone and go, well, here's his favorite Bible verses. They're going to go, where's, where's dad's Bible? And in, in our current day and age, I think we can be so quick to use all the technologies that God allows us to have but we need to remain true to having a Bible. One of the reasons I, I didn't put the main text up on the screen this morning is because I want us to be a church that values a Bible. Not just because I want you to do it, but I think the next generation needs to see us doing it. They don't need to just see us in, in front of a screen. I had a pastor one time tell me that I specifically do my quiet times in the living room with a Bible and a pen and a pad it would be easier for me to open up my phone and do it on an app and all that, but my kids never know what's the difference between Facebook and the Bible app. Nothing wrong with the Bible app. It's, it's a great tool. It's, it's amazing. But if we're trying to disciple someone else, we're trying to lead someone else in a direction, our friends, our, our kids, family members, this Bible speaks way more than our words ever will. Just having it out. So let me encourage you. If you want to make... The Bible, Jesus, something important in your life and important in the lives of a loved one, have one. Take notes. Highlight things. Talk about other things that if we make important other people, if, if we make talking about tithing important, you know what our kids will likely do? They'll tithe. If you make helping those in need a priority, the, our kids may eventually make it a priority as well. If you make act, being actively involved in the church a priority, then your kids 
might do the same. I read this recently. So if you, Barna Research Study Group did a study of Americans. I don't remember the number of people that they had. It was a large number because it's Barna. They're a very credible resource. And they said that 71% of the group that they looked at in America grew up in church. 71%. So if you had 10 people, 7 out of 10. Of those 71%, about 61% stayed in church after they graduated high school, went to college, and had a family. They settled down. So of the seven, 61% stayed in church. So you're already losing some numbers there. But the people who didn't go to church, that 29% of that percentage, over 80% of them never went to church. So I share that with you to say that if you want to raise children, if you want to point to the next generation that values church and values the Lord, what we need to be doing is we need to be doing things in excess to a degree. You've probably heard it on the negative side. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. Meaning if, if you cuss in moderation... Some might think that your kids might cuss in excess, right? If you go to church in moderation, meaning, you know, the average Christian today, according to studies, the good, devoted, average Christian goes, only goes to church once or twice a month. What studies are showing and what scientists are looking at is that my kids, if I was to go to church once to twice a month, my kids might go to church once a month, once every other month. Because what I did in moderation, they did in excess. I wish I could say it was the same in the positive, right? If I go to church more frequently, then my kids are going to always go. But unfortunately, that isn't how our life works. But I do think there is a signal that we send. There's a message that we send to our friends, our kids, and others that what we value, we do. And I think you can see that same picture from Mary and Joseph. God has entrusted them with the care of the Son of God. And he didn't just entrust any parent. No. He gave it to two people who loved the Lord and valued his people, valued his word. And this is the picture that we get from them, that they would go to great lengths to travel to see the Lord. And this devotion is the preparation for them for the pain to come. So how does this connect with pain? Let's go back to the verse. Now, I want to say that this, uh, this is not a normative practice. If you lose your child for three days, they're probably not going to be in this building. Okay? Just FYI, that's not the normative practice. Uh, that's actually like one of my biggest fears. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Anybody? Come on, help me out. Okay. Six or seven. Praise the Lord. That's good. So there's a scene in this movie. Uh, I think Tom Cruise is like a, a cop or something like that. And he's swimming with his son. And they're playing the whole like go into water, see how long daddy can hold his breath game. And he does that. And he comes up one moment and his son is gone. I, I remember watching that when I was 17, 18. And that like scene has been kind of imprinted on my mind and my heart. And so anytime I'm in public with my kids, I'm like, I'm grabbing on. Like, I'm like, I'm the guy who wants to put a leash on them sometimes because I'm like, you're with me, right, at all times. But this is the situation that Mary and Joseph find themselves in. 
not only have they lost their son, they've lost the son of God. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something, right? And, and you might be going, how do, they, how do they lose them? Well, you know, it says in the text, right, that they're traveling with acquaintances and family members and friends. And so it's probably a large caravan of people that are going. And so they've entrusted possibly his care to, you know, Cousin Joe or Uncle Rico. And they're going, ah, he's got him. It's cool, right? And a day goes by. They're about to eat breakfast or dinner or whatever meal. And they're going, hold on. Where's Jesus? Right? <laughs> and, and so they, they begin to search for Jesus. They, they search for three days. There's no Amber Alerts. Like, they're out there by themselves, knocking on doors, trying to figure out what is going on. Can you imagine the pain and the fear that they were going through in that moment? I mean, I... I, I can't. I, I can't fully fathom what they would have felt. And, and I think sometimes we can take Mary and Joseph's situation and we can move it out of context and we can go, well, they knew they had Jesus and so Jesus was okay. But I, I, I want us to really think about that. This, this is a child still. I mean, they would have had to teach Jesus, hey, don't touch the stove because it will burn you. And so there's no doubt in my mind that Joseph and Mary were struggling with the balance and kind of the pendulum of this is my son, but this is also the son of God. I mean, they would have had to teach Jesus certain things. I mean, he would have been the best child to teach, you know. Some people look at this text and go, how is this Jesus not sinning? How did he not disobey his parents and run away or whatever? And the text clearly in, in the original language kind of reveals that this was just kind of an innocent moment where Jesus just kind of hung, hung around and in some ways it was maybe a little bit of negligence on the parents just going, all right, cool, we're gone, right? It's like I get out of church today, I go, all right, Micah, I'll meet you in the car. And then I get in the car and I start driving and I never even check to see if dude's in the back seat. You know, my wife actually did that to me one time with my father. My father, they left me somewhere. I opened the door. The, the, the back seat where I was supposed to sit was full of stuff. So I closed the door. I go to rock around the back. My father and my wife pulled out, <laughs> left me. I didn't have a cell phone. I start walking. They didn't notice it for miles. <laughs> miles. So they turned around. They came and got me. It was a great story. I know what Jesus was probably experiencing in that moment to a degree, I suppose. That's my story. <laughs> <laughs> but here in this situation, Mary and Joseph have been looking for their, their son. And in the middle of probably one of the most painful moments of their life, I can only imagine if their cup wasn't filled with the devotion and the love of God, and their cup was trying to be filled by all the other things in the world, they would have nothing to pour out in that moment. The tank would be on empty. But because we know that Luke has led us to this place, that because they love the Lord and they sought after him, they had plenty in their tank to trust in God through that storm, through that moment. They ultimately get to Jesus in verse 48, we saw. It says they were astonished at what Jesus is teaching. And again, this kind of reveals back to that moment of they're, they're struggling with this balance of the Son of God and my son, my child. 
And what's interesting enough is, you know, these next words from Jesus, these are his first words recorded in Scripture. They get there and they're, hey, why have you done this? And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? I can almost hear the innocence in, in his words and kind of revealing to me and hopefully to you that I think there's this normative principle that going through the greatest pains in our life can bring the greatest revelations. When we go through some of the greatest pains and some, some of the greatest toils and struggles, they bring some of the greatest revelations. That Jesus is always here for us, and he is always at his Father's house. And he's calling us to always look to him. He's calling us to, no matter what is going on in your storm and in your pain and in your struggle, know that he is constant. It's, we go up to him, Jesus, where are you? Why aren't you in this moment like I need you to be? And he just looks back at us so often and goes, don't you know that I'm in my father's house? I'm here. Knock, and I will answer. Seek me, you will find me. I'm actually probably, like Hunter said, I'm, I'm, I'm already present in the moment. The question is, are you recognizing my presence? It's kind of what he looks back at Mary and Joseph and you and me saying. That he is right where he needs to be. In one way or the other, when you go to look to get your cup filled, you need to go back to him and not to all the other things of this world. Because his cup, his filling of our cup, I should say, will never run dry. So what's the purpose of pain? Pain exists to remind us of our need for God. It was actually a title of a sermon that I, that I gave during the Jonah sermon series. It's, the pain is the promise that brings repentance. That's why pain exists. Because without pain, without moments of struggle, why would we need a good God? Why would we think, we, why would we ever get to this revelation moment where we need God? Because there's no pain. Everything's good in our life. We, we haven't seen the toil and the, str the stress and the anxiety and the, the darkness of our sin. But God allows pain, as C.S. Lewis says, to kind of rouse the deaf ear in us. To reveal to us the nature of God. And to say that he will come fill our cup. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, whether you're a believer for many years or maybe you just wandered in and, and you don't have a relationship with God this morning, I want you to know that a good God allows you to go through pain so that you'll see his goodness and his greatness in your life. He allows you to see pain because you, whether you know it or not, asked for pain in your life. See, the Bible tells us that God created us perfect and good but then through sin, we fell. Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God told them not to. And I was having this conversation with my son earlier this week. And he goes, so Adam and Eve messed it up. And I said, okay, sure, let's go there. Didn't I ask you to do something this morning? Yes, dad. Did you do it? No, dad. How's that different? It's not. My seven-year-old, he gets it. I'm going, so when God tells you not to eat from the tree, 
And yet, would you eat or would you not eat? He goes, I probably would eat. So don't blame Adam and Eve. You are just as guilty as them. But when that sin happened, that, that, that broke everything. Death, pain, struggle, all the things came into the world. And if that was the end of the story, it was, it'd be awful. It'd be a terrible story. It wouldn't be here. But it's not. Jesus comes, just like we see him in this picture. And he comes to point Mary and Joseph back to the ultimate thing, back to God. He comes, he lives a perfect life, and he dies for me and you. And he says, you know what? If you'll put your faith, your hope, your trust, your life into me, then I will reunite you with the Father. I will make you whole. I'll give you shalom. I will fill your cup, and your cup will overflow. So no matter what struggles you find yourself in in this world, no matter what relationship you think is broken beyond repair, no matter what financial situation that you just can't see the light of day out of, no matter what loss you're experiencing and the heartache and the struggle and the pain, know this, that if you continue to try to fill your cup in every other place in this world, it will always be dry. But if you look back to Jesus and you say, God, I trust in you, I believe in you, and you say, fill my cup, I'll follow you for the rest of my days. Just fill me. He'll do it. That's my prayer this morning. That we'll step out and become the children of God that God has called us to be. Rather than looking to get our cup filled from all these other places, we'll just go and run back to the source. And we'll be the followers of God. That no matter what through the pain, no matter what through struggles come, we can have the courage and the faith to say, God, fill me up so that I can be poured out just like your son poured himself out for me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today, for this gathering of the saints. Lord, I ask that as we make proclamation of your word and we sing songs back to you, that these will be moments where our hearts will be poured into, that we'll be filled, so that when we scatter into the world and to the other places, and we might experience pain and struggle and setback, that we can be poured out and there will still be enough in our cup. That we won't be struggling to see the goodness of who you are throughout all situations, but we will recognize the greatness. That you'll see us through every storm, every battle. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry about the next steps. We don't have to hold everything near and dear in our hand. But yet we've given security and trust to you. You are our, our author and our perfecter. Help us to seek after you. It's in your son's name I pray. And the church said.